Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, welcome to another episode of Excuse the Mess. This is a music podcast where we explore the minds and music of some really exceptional composers, musicians and noisemakers. My name is Ben Corrigan, I'm the host and creator of Excuse the Mess, and I'm over the moon to be sharing with you the second instalment of Oliver Coates' appearance. The first came out last week and it was a music-making episode, which is something that happens with every guest on this podcast. They bring an instrument with them and together we write a new piece of music using only that instrument and electronic manipulations of it. That episode is a good place to go if you want to get a sense of the kind of music that Ollie's making at the moment, something he's calling Cello Slime. If you've never listened to any of his music before, then let me introduce you to your first listen, the track that opened this episode called Char Lev from his album Shelley's on Zenla. Throughout the episode, you will hear plenty more examples of his music. To give you a little bit of context, though, Ollie makes cello-led electronic music, often quite dancey and always with a good dose of experimentation. He's a really fantastic producer and sound designer, and he uses his cello in unusual ways. Some of you may have first encountered his music when you went to go and see Tom York last year. Ollie was the supporting act on the UK and US tours. We recorded the conversation you're about to hear in the bowels of the South Bank Centre in a quiet dressing room, although partway through we are joined by a practising violinist in the room next door. In the episode, we're going to talk about his evolving relationship with cello and electronics and the albums that he's made with these elements. We'll also discuss another album called Remain Calm, a collaborative album with composer Mika Levy. There'll be some more talk of slime and an insight into what his music diet was growing up. Just before we get to it, a quick but by no means small thank you to Arts Council England, PRS Foundation and Isotope Audio for supporting this podcast and to Acast for hosting it. 
I hope by the end of this episode you have a deeper appreciation of Ollie's music, or if these aren't new sounds for you, that you've been converted to a fan. Personally, I'm very inspired by Ollie and his music, and I'm confident that you will be too. So without further delay, this is episode 16 featuring Oliver Coates. It's really exciting to hear what you're doing with the cello at the moment. And I was wondering if that relationship has changed over time. The relationship to the electronics has probably transformed and maybe they've influenced each other as you've gone along. Yeah, definitely. Well, they used to be quite separate. Making sort of computer music was a thing that I used to do as a relaxation away from the cello and as something that was non-professional, nothing to do with earning money. And the cello was my sort of craft and sort of profession and career. Mm. And then I started to trust more and and sort of like be more excited by sound design. And I guess that led to composition, but slowly away from sort of interpretation of the canon at least, although I still enjoy aspects of interpretation of the canon. But this other sort of enthusiasm took me over to the point where the thing that was the, the pleasurable pursuit sort of moved into the main and then electronics moved into the main and the cello being the thing that I'm most confident at as a performance tool, but also as a way of generating sounds. I had to then work work out how to integrate them. When you're trying to create something new, would you firstly rely on the cello to generate those first sounds? It was different each time, but I, I guess I did, I did always want to make a kind of sound design ambient music, like a kind of gothic music, but I never really had an outlet for that. I had people encouraging me to pursue the dance music which was which was more fun, you know, more just like a yeah. relaxation thing. And then people, and I had sort of record label inviting me to make more in that style. Back then it was sort of more curated or, or shaped by, by other forces and trying to compile a record to make that was dance music. And then using the cello was sort of trying to find a, an original take into dance music so it didn't just sound generic. Yeah. And using the cello and then distorting it and then cutting it up and manipulating its pitch satisfied the parts of my listening that need to sort of be stimulated to be like, I've not really heard this before as much as making produced electronic dance music that kind of did fit into some of my enthusiasms. Kind of imagine you as a bit of a a mad scientist spending ages with the cello and trying to find new ways to make it sound not like a cello, but also not fully like a synth. I think it is emotional because I, I have just been playing the cello so long and for all my life from a child and also but then it becomes quite uh disembodied like sort of like even in these dressing rooms at the festival hall i I used i remember sitting here with one mic and one laptop and one cello and and sort of just being out of mind out of sort of consciousness of just trying to record something and then process it and then listen back and just make sound design really sound design experiments just little one minute experiments and I have hundreds of those and there's some of them are noise some of them are just excessive reverb some of them are backwards tracks or like folk melodies played down two octaves Mm. so I have hundreds of files that are like that that are my kind of testing ground of a mic and a piece of software and the cello and and then until it became fluent and then I, I often notice that I'm in the kind of with the laptop, I'm in the kind of clicking mode, which which is quite impulsive, and I'm sort of moving things around, and I'm and I, and I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm yeah. do, I just do it really really fast, and I'm just quietly paying attention to where the the track is going, and I'm sort of just it's it sort of illogically pushing things around. Something's telling me to do that until it starts to be a form 
that I can perceive to be a form, but yeah. it's a form that is not the same as anything I've heard before. Yeah. Taking those little almost exercise-like sketches and transforming them into a more uh, substantial piece of music is really hard. It's comforting to know that you've still got hundreds yeah, set on but, the computer. But that's also to do with the right one will pull you through. And yeah. Laurie Spiegel said this to me. She said, like, you make lots of material, lots of experiments and lots of initial drafts or beginnings but when one is calling you it will yeah. call you in the right way and it will see you through to the bitter end yeah and then if you make a one minute experiment or a 10 second loop i always save it somewhere because i'll end up using it somehow mm. in something this is time lapse walrus from ollie's 2016 album upstepping which put him firmly onto the electronic music map there been like maybe one specific experiment that's even pulled you into the direction of a whole album no i've never had a single technological discovery that then yeah. became the premise for an album i don't really i tend not to think like that that might be changing more recently now with this attitude that i have with bringing the live experience close to the recorded sound this this thing i'm doing called cello slime improvisation and a new sort of technique with two loopers and distortion and sometimes chorus and a way of improvising live that kind of creates a larger structure which is sort of open-ended but feels well there are elements of composition because 
the triggering of the loop is, is automated. So things kick in and kick out structurally. So you, so you feel like you're traversing a really large, almost symphonic piece of music, but you're generating it all live and your instincts are at play. When we were together the other week, you were saying it's kind of been born out of, or at least you can hear aspects of the beginnings of that from your recent live shows. Yeah, well, for a while now, I've always finished my live shows in a certain way, very, very loud and very saturated and thick. And now I've found another layer to that, which is sort of a polyphonic layer, which means that the pieces of music can start to take on a kind of complex architecture or just a slimy polyphony where where things revolve and things sort of resolve and fall into place, but in unexpected ways. The timings are sort of, they're not rigid four yeah. or eight bar structures. They're kind of, so so while the, some of the harmonic flow with big sludgy kind of like organum of cello spread across octaves and fifths and with heavy distortion, some of it sounds like rock music, slowed down rock music. Mm. The proportional timings of the weight of different chords happens in a slightly lopsided or crippled way. So the, the loops and the, the amount of time spent dwelling on a certain harmony before moving on are kind of... You could never write them because yeah. because the loops are sort of kicking in in their own arbitrary way. Yeah. And I like that. I, so there's a chance. Chance is definitely part yeah. of the music-making process. And that's still a surprise to you as well as the listener. Yeah. You can't quite predict what's coming. Yeah. And that has an impact on live improvisation and also on recording pieces of music at home that then I draw a line under. So yeah, there have always been these abrupt changes between albums, changes of style. Abrupt changes of style have been part of what I've been doing all the way through and will probably continue. And now chance plays a bigger part in the kind of evolution of kind of larger structures with this sort of drone metal style. Yeah, drone metal, that world has sort of become an obsession almost, something that you're just really drawn to. Through just playing live and feeling the frequencies in a large venue through a big PA, really, it's really fun and to stand within a sort of ocean of sound and to really take people up um, if they want to come has been something that I've been fascinated by. But I also think it's sort of like a rare gift and yet... You have to hold it back. And then more recently, just through life circumstances, everything in my listening has required more more of a sleep state. I've, I've been more drawn towards a white noise, kind of hissy, crackling sustain through everything that I've been doing. And so that started to permeate into my most recent work. And I think it's in this track that we've made together yeah. for your project. And, and I think that that is good because it, it's truthful to where I am now. Mm. At times, you find, as a musician, you find yourself making music against yourself. Yeah. And that is hard. And I think the point of being a musician is to be free and to liberate yourself. So you, you are kind of always following your impulses, following what the inspiration tells you to do. But um, you find yourself making, you know, trying to finish a piece of music that's against your current listening yeah. tastes. But um, wherever possible, you should try and think of your art like your music making as a practice mm. that flows and try and make the world around your practice flow into your pursuits rather than running after ideas of, of what other people or what other structures seem to be asking for. It takes time. But you don't really know what you want as well at certain times. When people tell you yeah. to be yourself, it's you don't know what that means, actually. 
it's kind of useless advice sometimes. And then later on, you still don't know what you want, but you're able to zero in a bit more. Um, you're able to see with more perspective the the whole cycle of tastes, of things that you've fallen in and out of over the years. Going back to when you were the onset of intense emotions when you were much younger and you're able to see this sort of kaleidoscope of things that you've fallen in and out of love with over the over, over the successive sort of stages of your life and as you get older you start to see that you were right your tastes were kind of there right at the beginning in your most innocent state the things that you were drawn to you sort of come back to them full circle and and you obey the most childlike part of you is that where you are right now well i don't know i'm, I'm sure i'll be wrong i'll sh- I'll prove myself wrong, but mm. at the moment I do... There's a sort of incandescent sound that I remember I really craved when I was about 13. There was a kind of Smashing Pumpkins, you know, Cocteau Twins as well, kind of um, submersion in, in sort of emotional sound that's sort of inescapable and, like, buries you in an ocean of, of waves of sound. And I and it's taken me a long time to get back to that. I always sort of knew it was there for me in the corner of my heart, but I didn't quite know how to get there. This is a very recently released track called Calm Slime, Loud One Cut, and it's one of the only current examples of cello slime in action, other than going to see Ollie play live or listening back to last week's episode where he made the track Slime UK. I guess all of that training in the uh, inverse commas classical world fights against a lot of that. So, is it quite satisfying to I mean, your like, way back towards it? But I mean, the good thing about training in the classical world is it, it's not really like boot camp. You might have a severe teacher. I never had any severe teachers. I always just had the sort of intense framework by which I could be pursuing things. But privately, I was always trying to think about a dark tunnel of sound. When I was even when I was practicing notated music, I was I was trying to channel the emotions from a different type of music. Mm. If he was to say that a, a classical structure can be intensely moving, but in a very different way that a five-minute grunge song can be intensely moving or intensely sort of appealing to your anger, they, they are unrelated sort of types of human experience. But I was definitely sitting there playing the cello or trying to play a sort of 25-minute structure of sort of cello music, but really trying to think about 
the room that I was in when you when you hear Kurt Cobain sing or something, or when you hear Liz Fraser from the Cocteau Twins sing, why do those emotions cut through so much more immediately than a, a symphonic sort of Shostakovich type structure? And how can you, as a sort of teenager, can sort of channel one inside the other? And so that was going on, and there were no answers to that. I was going to say that's a lot of thinking to try and get to an answer there. No, I just remember what I was like. I I would have I wouldn't be able to play music physically. I couldn't get myself motivated to do it until I had played a bunch of CDs in a certain order. There would be a certain violin sound. There would be a certain grunge sound there would be a certain singing sound and I would just play all these things at home alone and often just be 15 seconds of one and 10 seconds of the other until I sort of weirdly made this cocktail like cocktail of sounds and then I would be finally motivated to go and pick up the instrument and start practicing and doing sort of hours was that like a daily yeah I could I really I struggled with like a version of putting it off but I had to summon the sound I was in love with these sounds and I had to summon them up and listen to them all. I remember there were sort of... I was really interested in suede guitar solos, and I was really interested in the Blue Nile the mm. singing style. And But then it would also be, like, teenage recordings of Maxim Vengeroff, and then it would be, like, certain bits of sort of sacred minimalism, choral music. And, and you know, we've all got, like, a, a a bunch of music that we turn to for sustain and, and for, for nourishment. But I would do a weird jumping, listening, until yeah. I was fired up to go and play the cello in the next room or whatever. Yeah. And that each sound had to relate to those loves. That's fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> because it is hard as a kid to... Because I, I, I can tell that a lot of the classical kids who do good practice and regular practice do it because they're methodical people and they've got they've had good sort of frame and they, they turn to it. But later on, they don't quite know that they've picked it up every day because it's like a burning emotion. They've yeah. picked it up every day because it's a technical pursuit to sort of master something. Right on cue, the violinist next door has their first peep of practice. More to come, just you wait. I mean, I can't speak for everyone, of course, but I was very much uninterested in, in, in a somehow like a cello-oriented universe. I was interested in an emotional music-oriented world, and I happened to be playing this cello, and it seemed to be the paths that were available to me. Like, I could make more music through that. So every time I would try and channel, like, a... Oh, there were certain in British bands in the 90s, like, um, um, who weren't quite as famous as Suede or, or Radiohead, but they were more, like... they Maybe they were the support acts, like Marion and Jean and... Um, all those kind of indie bands, I really liked them. Um, I liked the singing and, and stuff. But then it also related to the sort of more American thing. And then later on, my, my Bloody Valentine and bands like that. Great that there's just all of that kind of back catalogue going on in there. Yeah, and, it, and it, it, is, it is informing now my relationship with the cello and the computer. So there's different types of distortion. And, and also, I'm interested in degradation and taking melody that's formed and playing with it in terms of of memory and degradation and distortion and I really like and I own a lot of the caretakers music the the caretakers are I think a real pioneer and sort of expert in that area he took some of what Brzezinski did and but made it a real sort of fine art
this is a four-part track that Ollie wrote last year, released by Ooh Sounds. That was the first part, Path In, and here's J Lover 1. stuff that's great amazing isn't it yeah and it's nice to be between waking and, and sleep with him yeah i saw him do his live set and it's a similar thing to what you were talking about where you can be taken up with the music but there's no necessarily distortion or kind of a, a slow ramping up of stuff it was just it's not about steady sort of, it's not about dynamic shape with him is it? no it's about drifting states it's yeah it's marvelous and the lights add so much, I know that really? it's not... Yeah, it kind of did. I was in the Albert Hall in Manchester. Yeah. And there's this convex window at the back of the building. Yeah. It was upstairs lying down and just actually... That light. If I looked into that window, I could see a small version of him inverted, I think. Oh, uh, right. And the lights would pass over it and it was just kind of... I don't know, it's weird. You can just choose how you experience well, a performance. And yeah. I like that. That's it. And then the music frames the light. I mean, you would normally conventionally think of the, the light as a way of putting it. A glow around the music yeah. so something to witness but actually the music starts to become a way that you think more about light yeah these days i'm actually thinking more about how cello and processed sounds live processed sounds going into long reverbs or reverse loops relate to spray and ice and sheets of rain and also slime and how there's slime in the cello and there's cello in the slime and there's ice in the cello and there's but there's cello in the ice and and what and so it's a bit like transubstantiation, you know, you're not really, you're letting go of the metaphor. The metaphor's becoming a bit more real for you and you're getting lost in it. So with slightly longer experiments, I'm trying to think more about cello in the natural world. I imagine like to talk about it defeats the point in many ways. Yeah, no, I mean, completely. I'm, I'm okay with talking about it because there's a way of talking about it, which is in the, the line of the art world and, and, and things that have happened in the past, but in the doing of it, in the desire for just frequencies to, to have spray or to have ocean or have sort of deep sounds, um, you just let go. But, you know, um, Robert Smithson talked about sight and non-sight um, art. There was sight art would be out in the natural world in a desert or a manipulation of land or rubble or 
sort of reconfiguration of, of ecology. And then non-site would be something that you would put into an art gallery, like a pile of bricks in mm. an art gallery, to stand for where we all should be witnessing art, which is we cuts or interventions in the natural world, or just framings of how we look at the natural world. And that's the same with Gordon Matter Clark as well, with fret, like just cuts in buildings that were going to be dem demolished, just getting in there and exposing the light in a certain way through quite clever architectural operations that, you know, were actually kind of criminal. Like he, he wasn't meant to do that and they mm. had to just film it and then just run. And so they were very temporary works. But yeah. that, I'm, I guess I am looking for the chink of light through which this ch the cello as a practice leads closer to those forms in art where you reveal more about nature. Yeah. Is there a certain space that would be ideal to perform this music? Hadn't thought of that. No. It's a bit like if, if you record some of the heavier distorted cello music, but you make the, the mics really up close, and so it's quite a claustrophobic sound, and that can really work because you can always feel the air pressure mm. hitting you hard. I think that's what we've done with our track. Yeah. And then, but there are other ways of doing it as well, where you can imagine the mics at the back of the hall, and you could really feel a huge space and then the space itself is starting to really light up and reveal itself. Mm. What happens is, if I have a fifth and then distortion, I get this purity, and then I add another fifth on top, you, you sort of build stacks, but because the distortion is so ready to pounce on tiny deviations from the larger, larger perfect intervals, as soon as you move, it starts raging. Yeah. Sometimes you don't hear, maybe you don't hear distortion, but you hear a very like raw and powerful perfect interval like an octave but then as soon as you take a step away and like that octave is captured in the looper the all the things that people the subtle beatings that people normally are quite drawn to they're sort of wild sort of a maximalist approach to those sorts of messy relationships yeah frequency beatings and, and i've heard that now sort of really up close and also with a lot of reverberation so i haven't really put it anywhere perfect I suppose you'd be just theorising if it was a, it'd be brilliant in in a, in a quarry, or you know. Like, no, uh, yeah. but I, for the first time, I thought that binaural approaches would be interesting. Mm, yeah, because I I was doing it in a little studio, and my friend had a Tascam handheld, and she moved it. The first fifteen seconds, you can hear it moving, and because the the stereo mics on the Tascam were moving, it it really phases in the most amazing way. So the sound's mm. coming out of the PA. And you could imagine if your ears were, if you could move it binaurally, and then that could be something for the home listener. But if all someone was free, you should be encouraged to, f you know, make it phase by movement of your, your head. Yeah. To activate more messy, like, contours running running yeah. through the music. So, so everyone wants something different. Maybe from a painting, you sort of you look at a painting, and you, pe different people will see different things, and some people will look for more chaos, and some people will look for more kind of um, order, and, and you probably can get both out of how you you position your head. Returning to that four-part track, this is Yomi, shortly followed by Umbo, which has a beat that should really come with a health warning.
some Turkish prison. Wouldn't you want someone to know that we were in Turkey? You were in this house for smuggling. You were at a cafe, you met a guy, you were talking to me for the stuff. You look like that, right? Oh! I'm here! I'm here! I'm here! I'm here! Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. It'd be nice to talk a bit about remain calm. Yeah. 
your collaboration with Mika Levy, how that album came about and the construction of it being, to me, it feels like miniatures. Yep. And it could be like a kind of edited selection of one extended improvisation that has been uh, curated for an album. I don't know. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's exactly what it is. And uh, the first time we did it was in a ra- on a radio show for NTS and the Mika was doing her show and she invited me on and we, we played some tracks but we just sort of spent a long time just not talking, just we didn't talk at all, just played music and I had the cello plugged in and some delays and she had CDJs and she was doing different sounds and so we did an hour's NTS show and then and there were bits of that that were quite quite nice and then record label Slip asked us to do it again and it took a while but eventually we got together in someone's flat and she had CDJs and I had the jello and the laptop mm. and then and yeah and we spent about seven or eight hours just playing that day just playing stuff Fantastic. and then and then again it took a while for us to get around to record to sort of listen back and then we just chose we chose the bits that felt that it sort of responded to certain things that we were asking for I mean there was there were there were a lot more noisy tracks and a lot more huge sounding things but we chose we decided to go for everything that was sort of it's like nothing-y kind of insect-y kind of yeah and then there were a few things that we started calling kind of baroque like ornamental things that felt like baroque or gothic gestures and then yeah, we just had a few editing sessions it was very quick and, yeah. and and just chopped out and then I remember I added a couple of long notes and I sort of tuned a couple of bits and mixed um, but basically it was just little cuts out of that day This is Baroque Main met the week before and I wrote out a piece on a piece of paper some musical ideas 
that she didn't have and they were for me and then we had we just had a conversation but we didn't really agree anything and then we went in and I largely ignored that piece of paper there's one sequence of notes that I I played off that piece of paper yeah okay. but I didn't know what she was going to do sure yeah and she's quite adept at tuning pitch of, of whatever sample she's working with to whatever she's hearing in, mm. the, in the room so she's very good at sort of tuning pitch just in terms of successful collaborations, what do you take from it? I mean, Mika's just a very strong composer, and most of what I've done with her has just been playing her music, and she writes music on notation, which you need other people to play, and I've often found myself in that role. I think it's about the, the moments where you line up and you're doing exactly what fits with each other, and then you edit it out, and then, then you present that to the world. And I think I've been quite lucky that I've been able to guess what Mika wants, mm-hmm. a lot from also from her scores just by quickly looking at them and going, I think it's going to work better if we do this. And and normally that means playing exactly what she's written, but without some complication that comes from somebody's idea or interpretation. So I'm I'm quite big on just... And I know she feels it too, sort of how you play and the dynamics of how you play, quite raw and quite elemental, and you're very simple, without too many frills, really. Even just how you might stand or your demeanour with how you might play some simple pattern. Because yeah. there's a lot of information that's passed through people's body language when they play. So it's like being aware of that. Yeah. I wonder if uh, you were talking about sort of the music that you grew up on and having just an openness to very many things. I don't know Mika, but I get the sense and from knowing her music fairly well, there's exactly the same thing. And maybe that's why it works. Um, I think she was into a lot of hip hop, which I was never. But she was also into Nirvana and sort of bands and but she knows a lot more about punk than I do and hardcore yeah. and certain punk movements and and hip hop movements which I don't know so well through her I know a few things but I don't there were there were sort of big things that took her interest yeah. when she was a teenager that I didn't but there are similarities as well she was playing viola and experimenting with effects on on and recording techniques and um, I was I did that too and and then I I did that more as an adult and then yeah, but that's common to a lot of people where music just flow. One type of music flows into another, and the experience of one casts light on the experience of another. So I, I think we have that in common. Yeah. Schoolhouse. doing for time yeah i've got 10 minutes 10 minutes um upstepping something that was important to me and this podcast the idea of using the cello as the sound source Mm. is what happens in this podcast as well Mm -hmm. using an instrument as the sound source and Mm. yeah that came along at just the right time when i was enjoying dabbling in like sort of sample challenges with some friends and i would we would get together, we'd all bring a five second clip oh. of sound, and then it's basically like fact magazines against the clock. Yeah. So we'd share the samples around and all sit in the same with, with our laptops, and then oh. 
hit hit go and like 15 minutes maybe later we'd share what we had but yeah I was really enjoying sound manipulation and that kind of thing I discovered podcasts at the same time mm. and then I think yeah upstepping kind of came into my life which is just this amazing dancey positive intricate work and it was born out of cello sounds I I probably didn't even want to make dark and gloomy music even then but sometimes yeah. you you start something and, and, and you know that it has something good about it and it's kind of irritating because you think well I have to obey this mm. thing and I have to obey its own character and you have to see it through if I was to force it into being a dark and gloomy track so a lot of those yeah. tracks are quite I don't know because you're sort of just listening to the sounds and you're doing what they tell you what they should do and then I guess there's something about taking little cello quirks sort of gestures and flicks and slides and turning them into something concrete which is sort of effectively like music concrete which is like taking acoustic sounds like putting through an sort of electroacoustic process and turning it into tape music mm-hmm. and and so in a way it was very much that attitude towards there's never live this is just tape but then also i was trying to also explore like tunings and un- unconventional scales in that album so that people although it sounds like if you're in a key or a familiar key mm. that all the sort of expressive notes are kind of off and they're, yeah. they're kind of pushing you in different directions so there's loads of that but kind of hidden and then and it all came out of a track called Another Fantasy a remix I did of a Bryce Hackford track which was a they'd asked me from the label if I would do a cello cover of Another Fantasy back then I thought that's a terrible idea it's such a terrible idea that I have to figure out how to do it yeah. and to do it well so it doesn't sound like a cello cover of Another Fantasy really weird kind of like music concrete kind of challenge yeah of, of taking that house track it's quite a distorted house track and turn it into a like we like we created that yeah. we're using the cello sounds and that's then what led to upstepping here's just a small snippet of that rework of Bryce Hackford's Another Fantasy Stepping is something that Genesis P. Orridge said about Alistair Crowley, about a sort of sense of transcendence and upstepping. So it wasn't completely, it was it was rooted in something about the esoteric. So it is, it is a sort of happy album on yeah. the surface, but it's okay. kind of a bit, I was interested in some slightly esoteric threads. The only thing that doesn't have a, an immediate positivity is Bambi. That's definitely got this dark gloom right. to it. Yeah, you see, I yeah. love that. Yeah. There's this constant woodblocky sound going on. It's either okay. something really, really factory, like an 808 kick. Yeah. Bouncing around. Fast, or, fast, fast. Or it's me knocking the bridge on the, the wood. Yeah. But you can't tell. Nah. Because the pitches are everywhere. Arpeggiator and one note and scepter very fast. And then like a randomizer or something with yeah. a pitch. Yeah. That's it. And then I fiddle with yeah. the EQ. That does it for me. It's one of my favourite ones off that album.
and it ended up being the end of the side A, which I thought was quite good. The side A ends really apocalyptically. Yeah. And I remember I just took it to the mastering, and it was just I didn't know what I was doing, and it was just all red, like all clipped. Right. And he went, oh well, you know, he didn't seem to mind. <laughs> it was just, it was just, it was just the worst mixed thing I've ever seen. It like I didn't understand. Yeah. I just thought that's what distorted music was. Yeah. Like, it just is all coming out in the red. <laughs> And he was like, that's fine, we can still master it to vinyl, that's no problem. And I love that, because he... If, if, if the mastering engineer... mastering engineer. Yeah, if the mastering engineer is like, fine, whatever yeah. you want to do is fine. Yeah. I, I was like, well, that, that's okay then, there are no rules. And then I just I was mixing it all through the night in Hong Kong, and Hong Kong's really empty at night, and it's a small city to walk around, and there are lots of parks and things that you can go and find. And so I did a lot of mixed listens. Walking is very important to that album as well. Okay. Yeah. I think a little while ago you said that it was quite a nuts time making that album. Is that why? Because you were suffering was, from jet lag. There was a lot in Hong Kong, and then in London I had a flood, so I was living in a hotel, right. moving around quite a lot. Um, there were traumas there mm. and then inevitably the music was being made as a sort of catharsis yeah away from that trying, I'm trying to make a success of the form of like experimental dance music it would be very hard to just go into because I have no experience of playing nights and clubs or scenes I've never been part of anything like mm. I've never had any clubbing life or been, never been part of any scenes or anything so it was just sort of trying just to carry on working at it so it was a like sort of an acceptable contribution and a positive contribution to that world yeah but then there were loads of, there's loads on the second half which is sort of off you know I was exploring I was interested in Mark Leckie and his loops of voices so I, that's when I got the Irish book of death and flying ships going and then I was interested in dark ambience so there's plenty on there that's kind of 
actually connected with the bigger picture of what I was interested in. Yeah. But it was shaping a dance album for a specific release that was requested of me. Hmm. Tim Coates, who's that guy then? Yeah, that's my dad, and he edited a book from the Irish Chronicles about UFO sightings in sort of, well, very early archives. And there was a lot of superstition and amazing stories about... And there was a lot of pestilence and a lot of famine and a lot of things in Ireland where people died and no one knew why, you know, so everyone died in a particular parish or whatever, and they, they, they thought it was all kinds of things like like we do even now. We, yeah. we have all kinds of superstitions. Yeah. <laughs> More yeah. than ever. Um, and that's part of the brain. But yeah. back then it was really well chronicled, and so I used... Mm-hmm pages from that and turn that into a track this is the irish book of death and flying ships 8580 st barica sprinkles certain lepers with holy water and immediately cleanses them Eighty-six, one, two, one, two. A star was seen in the seventh hour. AD 586. A solar eclipse in the morning. AD 592. Deficiency of heat for three years. That is a dark morning. A cloudy morning. Seven four two. There were dragons seen in the sky. Serpents were seen in the sky. The wolf was heard speaking with human voice, which was horrific to all. Dragons were seen in the sky. Rivers of blood. Partial eclipse of the moon. A shining night in autumn. The wolf was heard speaking with human voice, which was horrific to all. Shelley's on Zenla. Yes. When you were over the other week, you said it was a purging of Aphex Twin. I mean, it was a purging of... Well, yeah, I mean, it, it was just something I really wanted to do was just to make a really heavily mid-90s kind of inspired album. And I was interested in quite a lot of Aphex sort of rarities, like Peel Sessions and B-Sides and things that were not the big overt tracks of big albums. But also I was really listening to a lot of the first couple of Orteca albums and Geogaddy, Boards of Canada, and um, and also looking up some of the less well-celebrated artists from that time. Did you use Renoise because some of those artists had? Was it the first time you used Renoise? No, I learned it back in the mid-2000s or oh, right. 2008 okay. or something on the boats, on the cruise ships. 
cruise ships. Well, when I say I did used to make electronic music for pleasure, it was sort of I was working on a cruise ship playing classical music, and oh, right. and in the and I used to do sort of glitchy music on Renoise. Yeah, okay. But you forget yeah. quite easily. You forget what the short keys are, and you can forget quite easily how it works. And then so I had to refresh myself. That software is quite an intimidating thing to look at. I looked it up online, and it just looks very not counterintuitive, just yeah. very different to all the other common doors that you could yeah, uh, find and use. But I suppose it brings its different quirks. That yeah, it's really powerful for um, programming drums and things and sample manipulation in general because it just yeah. treats your hard drive everything on your hard drive like a sampler with mm. hexadecimal code so you just if you just learn the code and you key in the, the way of getting it you, it just cuts up samples based on typing in numbers so if you just do that before you know it you're able to just quickly combine and hop around samples yeah i want to start this this file halfway through just because you've typed in the right key code and then you're creating patterns and you're not looking at a waveform. You're just listening and you and you and you hit loop and you sort of hit spacebar with small loops so that you can just listen and build up patterns that way. Yeah. What you weirdly do is you get into this habit of guessing a number. You say, Oh, I think I want it somewhere like C six or something, and you type that in, and then it'll tell you where in the sample it's that'll then you hear it and you say, Okay, I just want it a tiny bit earlier, and you go B6. Yeah. And then it's just a tiny like bit slice earlier, and you're like, yeah. the timing of that is right. So let's say you're dealing with a few recorded things, like a, a harp passage or a cello passage or a drum loop, and you're sort of laying them out, and you're trying to combine them, and you just want them to work, but not with conventional timing, but you just keep listening, and you just keep making these kind of... You hazard these guesses yeah. at, at the sample slice, and that's how I worked on it. I did a few, there are a few drumming sequences from that album on that I made in Renoise. Yeah, the drum sequences, now that you've described that, they sound, there's just so many fine details Yeah, it's there nuts. Yeah. I, I just love them. You know, like... It's very relaxing. You're, you're looking at these numbers scrolling past and you just stop and you just go in and you just change one tiny number. Yeah. And it just, it like, the way that the, the each tick is divided up is so minuscule and you can just get really, really detailed. Yeah, I bet that's a lot of listening and listening and listening yeah, and yeah. trying. And so it was that. Things. It was that kind yeah. of an album. It was a laptop yeah. album. A lot in the bed. For me, that's like Aphex said. That's like the new folk music. You can carry it any, back in the nineties. You can carry it around with you anywhere, mm. and just mm. and it's not coming from any institutional discipline. It's not coming from any. But it, it involves simple melodies as well and folky type melodies, and it involves the the sort of slightly anarchic sort of cutting up of of tiny little beats and stuff and that so that was an album in a way to expunge my love of that which i might return to later faraday monument the opening track from shelley's on zenla
There is this moment of emptying out the serene purity in Prairie. <laughs> it really calms me down. Yeah, that's a beautiful moment in your live sets as well. Mm. It just sort of wipes the plate clean. Yeah. And it is, it is an emotional and moving piece of music. One day I just improvised it into a microphone in a dressing room, actually. Yeah. It was almost like a mic test. I was like sort of <laughs> testing out a mic and a reverb, and I sort of improvised it. And then when you listen back, you're like, that seems to be like a, sounds like a written melody, but it mm. wasn't, it was just sort of fiddling around. That was Prairie, easily one of my favourite pieces of music. And to play us through to the end of this episode, this is A Church from Shelley's on Zenla. I just want to say a huge thank you to Ollie for being such an inspiration and a fantastic guest to get on the podcast. I'm sure you can all agree with that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. It's really much appreciated. If you reckon you know someone who'd be into this podcast, then please do send them a link. If everyone who listened to this episode did that, we'd have double the audience overnight. To keep track of anything new to do with Ollie, I would suggest going to his website, olivercoats.com, or follow him on Instagram at ollicoats. You can also visit the Excuse the Mess website, etmpodcast.com. On Twitter, it's at etmpod, and Instagram at etmpodcast. The next guest, another person I've been trying to get on for a very long time, is the unstoppable composer, Anna Meredith. I'm very excited for that. But until then, look after yourself, and thanks for checking out Excuse the Mess. Thank you.